Hi, everyone. You're listening to Infectious Ideas, a podcast series presented by the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases, the NFID, where leading experts join us for thought-provoking conversations that lead to infectious ideas. Guests include humble heroes and future leaders working together towards a shared vision of healthier lives through effective prevention and treatment. Welcome to the NFID podcast, Infectious Ideas. This is Marla Dalton, NFID Executive Director and CEO, and with me is my co-host, NFID Medical Director, Dr. Bill Schaffner. Bill, it's always great to have you here. (laughs) Always good to be with you, Marla. So as we celebrate the 50th anniversary of NFID this year, we're looking back at the humble heroes of public health whose work has had a profound impact. And today's guest is one such hero, Dr. William H. Fagey, who helped develop the ring vaccination strategy that ultimately led to the eradication of smallpox, considered one of the greatest achievements in public health. Smallpox was a disease that plagued humanity for at least 3,000 years, and about 300 million died of the disease in the 20th century. Working as an epidemic intelligence service officer on a smallpox outbreak in Nigeria in the 1960s, Dr. Fagey and colleagues developed an innovative strategy to stop the outbreak. Their strategy, based on surveillance and containment, was later adopted by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, and the World Health Organization. It was this vaccination strategy that ultimately enabled the eradication of the disease. Throughout his career, Dr. Fagey has worked to alleviate human suffering, serving as director of CDC, head of the Carter Center, and advisor to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. In 2007, NFID recognized Dr. Fagey with the Jimmy and Rosalind Carter Humanitarian Award in recognition of his work to improve public health worldwide. It is truly an honor to have you with us today, Bill. Thank you, Marla. So in your book, House on Fire, which is a favorite of mine, you wrote about the fight to eradicate smallpox, including the firsthand account of the villages you visited. So can you share with us how you first got interested in infectious diseases and I guess specifically what led to your work on smallpox? When I was a high school student, I was put in a body cast in a town that had no television. So I had to read. And I read a book by Albert Schweitzer, became interested in Africa and in medicine. And when I went to medical school, I found that there were so few people interested in global health that I had trouble finding a mentor. But I did find one, Ray Ravenholt. And he said, there's no clear pathway into global health. So if you're interested, go to CDC, become part of the Epidemic Intelligence Service, and you will find people who are interested in global health who will become colleagues for life. And he was absolutely right. Uh, One of them, Stan Foster, we met on our first day at CDC, and we continued to work together until the day he died. So that's how I became interested in going to CDC. At CDC, I was asked to look at a suspected case of smallpox in a Navajo child hospitalized in Farmington. This was in 1962. The child did not have smallpox, but it was very confusing because the child was recovering from measles, so had a background rash, and then developed uh, disseminated herpes on top of that. And it was one of only two times that I know of that CDC made an error in the smallpox lab, and they came back with suspected smallpox. So for a few days, we were very intensely involved in this. 
It was not smallpox, as I said. But the next year, I was working as a Peace Corps physician in India, and I saw smallpox for the first time. And it was traumatic. As I write in my book, you could smell smallpox before you entered the room. And I think what you're actually smelling are the pustules that are breaking down, and it smells like death. So that's how I became interested in smallpox. But I went on to get a master's degree under Tom Weller, a Nobel laureate at Harvard. And in one of his classes, I did a paper on the possibility of eradicating smallpox. He became so interested that he just he questioned me relentlessly. And afterwards, I felt just worn out. And one of his people said, he doesn't do that to embarrass students. When he is that intense, it's because he's actually interested. But I went off to Africa to run a medical center for a church group and received a letter from D.A. Henderson asking if I would be willing to be a consultant to the smallpox eradication program. He sent a CDC person out to talk to me about that. And that person said, I have to be honest with you, I'm not very interested in having you come on board. We don't need part-time people. We don't need consultants. We need full-time people. But I became interested and I signed on. Fascinating. That's a wonderful beginning. Now, Bill, for listeners, and I think this is probably the majority, who may not be familiar with ring vaccination, can you tell us about that strategy what led to it and how and why it worked. It's also being used for Ebola now, isn't it? It is being used for Ebola. And it started on December 4th, 1966, before the program started. I was already living in eastern Nigeria. And I got a message from a missionary saying he thought they had smallpox in a village. And so I used a Solex, it's a French bicycle that's so light, you can actually pick it up and walk across streams on logs. I took a Solex out maybe six, seven miles from a road. And sure enough, it was smallpox. But we didn't have our supplies. We have just limited supplies. And the question was, what do we do? But we sat around that night saying, what would we do if we were a smallpox virus? What would we do next to get immortality? And we got on the radio with the missionaries in the area because they got it on each night at seven o'clock to be sure that no one was in trouble. And we divided up the area with the missionaries asking them to send runners to every village in that area. And then 24 hours later, we got back on the radio and we knew exactly where smallpox was. And I often marvel at that because it would be hard to do that in the United States. And here we did it in 24 hours. We knew exactly where smallpox was, but we didn't have enough vaccine to actually go around and vaccinate everyone. So we used most of the vaccine in the villages where there was smallpox. We used the remainder in three areas where we thought it might spread next because of market patterns. It turned out that smallpox was already incubating in two of those three areas. But by the time the first cases appeared, everyone had been vaccinated there. And the smallpox disappeared so fast that we were taken by surprise. And we wondered, could you do this on a bigger scale? 
And we began to talk to the health directors at Inanugu, the capital of eastern Nigeria, to see if they would be willing to do a surveillance program to find the outbreaks and go directly to the outbreaks rather than vaccinate everyone. I used to work as a firefighter in Washington and Oregon. And if we were sent out on a fire, what we would have liked is to have rain that would actually wet the entire force. Well, that didn't happen. And so what did we do? We went directly to the fire and contained that fire. So we use the same approach here of where are the smallpox cases? Where's the virus right now? And can we surround that virus with vaccinated people and stop the outbreak? So that's how it started. It became so effective, but it was not a new strategy. What it was instead was a reduction of the WHO strategy, which was two-faced. Number one, do mass vaccination. And after that, then start working on outbreaks. And what we found is you could skip that entire first part and go directly to the outbreaks. I mean, that's absolutely a wonderful story, uh, one where your your field experience about which you were thoughtful and analytical showed you the path. And you use that marvelous word, surveillance. You had to know where the disease was, right? That's correct. Now, despite the success you had in Nigeria, when you returned to the U.S. to lead the CDC smallpox eradication program, this ring vaccination strategy was still novel, and it was greeted with a certain degree of skepticism, wasn't it? How did you overcome that? You know, Bill, it was reasonable skepticism because there was 170 years of experience with smallpox and mass vaccination, and this just seemed to be incorrect. And what I found was that when I would be asked to speak at something, I often found myself on the same platform with a man by the name of Bud Benenson, who you you will recall. Mm-hmm. He was the editor of Control of Communicable Diseases in Man, as it was called in those days. And he did not believe this could work. And so repeatedly, I was on the stage debating Bud Benenson, and I finally decided that this is a useless effort to debate it. What we have to do is prove it. And so we took what we had learned in Africa to India, the most intense focus of smallpox in the world. It's such a fascinating story. It's interesting. You've written that the dream of eradicating smallpox began back in 1796 when Edward Jenner inoculated cowpox taken from the hand of a milkmaid into the arm of a young boy. So why did we have to wait so many years after Jenner's work for smallpox to be eradicated? It's an interesting question, but we have to realize humbly, looking back, this was before the germ theory and where there were people who had some concept of something must be happening like this. It wasn't what people were going with. But more than that, there was no infrastructure. I think 1796 was the beginning of modern public health. There were things written in the literature before that about public health, but this was the first time we actually had a tool to use. And so it became the beginning of public health, but we didn't have an infrastructure. And Jefferson saw the possibility of eradication, and he wrote that 
to Edward Jenner when he said future generations will know by history only that this loathsome disease has existed. But even when it went to the World Health Organization as an idea, it was turned down. The first time, only three countries voted in favor of trying for smallpox eradication, uh, France and, and Uruguay, and I'm forgetting the third one, because they'd already had some bad experiences with the idea of eradication. They tried a yellow fever eradication program before they realized yellow fever spread in primates also. Mm-hmm. And they started a malaria program only to realize the tools were not yet good enough. So it just took time, but it's excruciating that it took that much time. Well, there isn't any doubt that first you need vision, then you need determination. And then if the science permits it, you need an infrastructure to actually deliver the vaccine. Now, I would argue that uh, here we are in this century, and given the success in smallpox, let me ask the naive question, why haven't we been able to eradicate polio, measles, or other diseases? I believe what we're up against is that many of these problems, while they're science problems, it's not the science that holds us up. It's the social will or the social conditions When I was with the Gates Foundation and we were looking at polio eradication and what was happening in India, particularly in Uttar Pradesh and Bihar, and there were people who argued it can't be the same virus that we've known before because it just won't stop. Of course, it was the same virus, but the social conditions, so much crowding, children in contact with each other at an early age, the difficulty of reaching people over and over. There were social problems that kept us from eradicating it. And when you look in Pakistan, and here the CIA got involved in polio as they were trying to get DNA from a particular person. And this so angered the Taliban that they actually were killing the vaccinators, the polio vaccinators. And it's up near 100, I think, that were killed. Mm -hmm. And you wondered, how could you get people to even do this kind of work? So these are social problems. The same thing with measles. We've come so close to eliminating measles with a program under the American Red Cross. But COVID has now set all of this back. And during the COVID period, We were looking at what are the true lessons we learned from smallpox eradication that might impact these other diseases. And of course, there are lots of lessons, but we came up with nine that we felt were so important that we've now done a curriculum that you can get online that's ninelessons.org. And these nine lessons, for I divide them into three parts. The first three are just so clear to everyone. Number one, it's a cause and effect world. It's not a magic world. There are causes, and when we discover them, then we have a chance to impact the effect. Number two, know the truth. There are so many times when you don't want to know the truth. It's just too difficult, and yet you have to know the truth if you're going to change things. And number three, you need coalitions. Nobody does anything on their own. But having gone through these three lessons, Then you get to three lessons that make you pause for a moment to ask, what do we do next? So the first one in that category is avoid certainty. Mm. Richard Feynman, the physicist, 
said, physics is the most certain of all sciences, and yet we're always trying to find where it's not certain. He said, certainty is the Achilles heel of science. Well, it's the Achilles heel of medicine in general. It's the Achilles heel of politics and religion and everything. So avoid certainty. But then the next one is you have to continuously evaluate to see, is it working or not working? Is your program requiring change? And third, respect culture. I learned in graduate school that if you tangle with culture, culture will always win. And once you've been through these six lessons, then you come to the last three, which are sort of, okay, you have it together, now go for it. And what are those lessons? One is combining science and management. Science can give you the best decisions on how to proceed, but the best results come from management. And number two, get political support. We're totally dependent on politicians. They're the ones that provide the appropriations for public health. So you have to learn how to work with politicians. And third and last, always keep a global perspective that we are all in this trying to improve global health equity. It's amazing to me how the Trump White House was able to violate all nine of these lessons including leaving WHO in the middle of a pandemic, which for me leads to the 10th lesson. Lessons are useless unless you use them. And I like to quote Mark Twain, who said, the person who doesn't read has no advantage over the person who can't read. A country that doesn't use these lessons has no advantage over a country before germ theory. I mean, that's just awesome, Bill. I think we ought to have that all taped over our desks as reminders. But speaking about interacting with our political leadership, you, every CDC director, invariably must interact with political leaders of the country. I'm sure, as you suggest, that presented its own set of challenges. So can you say just a little bit more about how you navigated those challenges? I'm sure it wasn't always easy. It's one of my biggest regrets, Bill, in public health is that I didn't learn more political science before getting into that position. I just somehow had the idea, if you come up with a reasonable public health strategy, people will fund it and go along with it. And it doesn't work that way. We have to learn to work with politicians and actually invest them in the outcome. Mm. And I ended up with uh, a person, George Hardy, who was our representative in Washington. He had been a staffer and he knew that field so well that he saved us time and time again from making big errors. And some of the politicians, I think, just were incredibly good. I think of Paul Rogers in the House. I think of, of Dale Bumpers and Mark Hatfield in the Senate. We could always depend on them. Ted Kennedy in the Senate, Henry Waxman in the House, Paul Simon in the Senate. These were people you could go to, and they were invested in a public health outcome and could give you guidance on what to do next. There were some people, of course, on the other side that were continuous problems. I think of John Murphy and the problems he caused during Legionnaire's disease, he stopped causing problems when he <laughs> got uh, imprisoned for taking bribes. But that doesn't always happen. 
And so there are others that cause big problems. But I'm convinced now public health people have to figure out how to work with the politicians. Political science should be more of what's taught in schools of public health. And global health should be taught in law schools and in business schools and theology schools to get everybody together to see how important global health actually is. Well, on that note, Bill, I've read many of the things you've written. Now I'm going to characterize you in that context as a public health philosopher. So I'd like you to say a few words, if you would, about your vision of the role of public health in society. Well, it's nice of you, Bill, to say that. That's not on my resume. (laughs) But I think that every place in the world is both local and global simultaneously. Therefore, any place you have someone working in public health, they're actually working on global health. And the objective is global health equity. That's what we have to keep in mind all the time. And I tell students that there are three things that they should be thinking of as they approach any public health problem. The first one is try to get the science right. We make a lot of mistakes, but try to get the science right. And I think of Thomas Huxley saying, science is simply common sense at its best. We have so many people that are opposed to science, but they think they have common sense. But if we characterize science as simply common sense at its best, then we have a better chance of selling it. But number two, bring creativity into the equation. So art and science. And Will Durant tells us the first scientist we know by name was the Egyptian Imhotep, who was the architect for the Step Pyramid. He was a physician. He oversaw the building of the Step Pyramid. And Will Durant says, isn't that a great thing for the first scientist we know by name to be both an artist and a scientist? And isn't that a great thing to try to get for the last person we will know in history that they're an artist and a scientist? So if you put those two together, you get creative common sense at its best. There's a third part of this. And I go back 700 years to Roger Bacon when the Pope asked him for a summary of science. Roger Bacon was one of the most enthusiastic scientists that I have read about. He predicted cars and submarines and airplanes and telescopes 700 years ago. Mm. And in his summary to the Pope, he says how great science is, but it lacks a moral compass. So you have to produce scientists with a moral compass. And if you do that, then you have moral, creative, common sense at its best. And to me, that's just a a great approach to public health. And I tell students, they're not likely to get rich if they go into public health, and they're not likely to ever be thanked. But if they can get beyond those two things, it's just a very satisfying vocation. And I tell them about Pearl Kendrick, who worked in Michigan in the 1930s and developed pertussis vaccine. Mm -hmm. When she died, I think it was in 1970, the dean of the School of Public Health at the University of Michigan, Bill Remington, gave a eulogy. And he said, there are hundreds of thousands of people alive because of Pearl Kendrick. And then he paused. He asked, could you name one? 
He said, I can't either. And that's why no one thanked her adequately. But he said she was secure in the knowledge of what she had done. And so that's my objective in teaching students of public health, to make them secure in the knowledge of what they are doing, even if they don't get thanked. (laughs) See, Bill, see, you are a public health philosopher, and that's inspirational. So thank you very much. Indeed. And it's actually one of my favorite of your many quotes, Bill, is that nobody ever thanks you for saving them from the disease they didn't know they were going to get. So I guess I'll ask besides that, which is obviously a large one, what most keeps you awake at night these days? You know, I think about vaccines and what 1796 meant and how this whole area of vaccinology went from the UK in the 18th century to France in the 19th century to the US in the 20th century and how it just has grown and grown and grown. It is the base, the foundation of public health and global health and will continue to be so. And then I worry about the (laughs) anti-vaxxers and what they might do to this. Sure, it was 1796 when we had our first vaccine. It was 1796 when we had our first (laughs) anti-vaxxers. And they had cartoons showing cow heads coming out of people's arms and that sort of thing. A person who doesn't believe in a round earth, the flat earth people, they don't actually stop our exploration of space. But the people who are anti-vaxxers make it very difficult for vaccines to be used. And vaccines, like science in general, get the strength, the power from being used, not just from existing. So they have the possibility, the probability of making it very difficult for the world to actually totally be protected by what is happening with vaccinology. So the more things change, the more they stay the same. That's the message. (laughs) Bill, this has been so delightful and really just entertaining and interesting. Um, Before we do sign off, I would like to give you the same opportunity that we give to all of our guests. And that is, what is the infectious disease myth that you would most like to bust? I think the one that bothers me the most is that vaccine cause autism. It's not just that it's not true. I think of these poor parents who have autistic children and somehow think they did something wrong or their doctor did something wrong, or science did something wrong. And even though there is so much evidence that this is not true, vaccines do not cause autism, it continues to exist and people continue to make money by promoting that. And I I think that this is one of the myths I would like to see disappear. Agreed. So we've been talking today with the genuinely legendary Dr. Bill Fahey, whose insights and strategy in applied public health helped rid the world of smallpox, one of its great plagues. Thank you, Bill. This has been most enjoyable and wonderfully informative. Thanks, Bill, and thanks, Marla. I enjoyed this discussion. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Infectious Ideas. You can follow, like, share, and download episodes on all streaming platforms, as well as find us at NFID.org with links to our social channels. We love hearing from listeners, so send us your questions, your comments, your concerns that may be infecting your mind. We look forward to hearing from you.